Taking Up Space is proudly supported by Cold Comfort, the ice cream of champions. Handcrafted with local, organic, fair trade, and recyclable ingredients right in the heart of Victoria. Vegan, dairy-free, gluten-free, and sugar-free options are available. Stop by the small, independent ice cream company with a conscience. Visit them online at www.coldcomfort.ca. This podcast is made out of CFUV 101.9 in Victoria, on the traditional and unceded territories of the Songhees and Wasanich peoples. You're listening to Taking Up Space, CFUV's intersectional feminist podcast, and I'm your host, Anne Bernice Thomas. In this series, we feature unheard and marginalized voices as folks from the community speak up and speak out about key topics that matter to them. This episode features conversations on racialization and being a racialized person in overwhelmingly white spaces. The panel for this episode features women who express their struggles caused by marginalization through poetry, advocacy, writing, and so many other forms. All right. Let's get started. I'm so excited. Thank you all for being here on this episode to speak about race and space. Our panel includes Simone, Zainab, and Rahat. Could you all introduce yourselves? So my name is Simone, um, Simone Blay. I'm a student here at UVic. Um, I'm in Gender and Indigenous Studies. I'm a future midwife and a current doula trying to do very um, radical birth work for indigenous and people of color. And I'm also a poet and a dancer. I'm, my name is Zainab Bintunas. I am a mom. I work with chocolate, which is awesome. <laughs> but mostly I am a Muslim woman who covers her face uh, with the niqab. I'm clearly a very, very, very visibly Muslim woman. I'm a writer and a freelance editor, a grassroots activist within the Muslim community, particularly online. And my focus is on Muslim women, social justice, and basically combating oppression and injustice wherever it may be. Hello, my name is Rahat Sani. I am also a student here at UVic. I'm in the theater department. I'm in the acting specialization. I'm also a stand-up comedian and a writer and a director. Mm. I'm very excited for this panel. Perfect, thank you. Uh, so first off, could you tell us a bit about how you became passionate advocates about race and decolonization? Simone, would you like to start? I think that for me, it didn't really feel like a choice. It was just kind of something that happened for me and living in the body that I live in as a femme presenting black woman, there, there are things that I've faced in my life that I, like activism just felt natural. It felt normal. It felt right. And it, a lot of the things that other people kind of see of, as activism for me was more carving my path and figuring out a way to to get through institutions that don't necessarily want to cater to me or even want me to be here in certain ways. Right. And so I think that it's seen as activism, but really for a lot of us, it's it's survival tactics, mm -hmm. you know? It's it's figuring out how to live in this world, which isn't always so kind to us. So yeah, I think for me, it's, it's just kind of been a natural thing. And um, yeah. 
Yeah, definitely. I agree with you that it's seen as activism by others, but it's literally just living our daily lives. This is how we exist. Mm -hmm. uh, for myself, I never actively or consciously chose to become an advocate for racial issues. It just happens that I'm a person of color, but again, most importantly, I'm a person of faith and visibly so. My identity has always been primarily Muslim and I, growing up, it was just, well, I'm Canadian Muslim. And race wasn't really something that my family talked about much or discussed much. And it was something that I discovered comes along with the territory of being a Muslim woman of color living in the world. People automatically equate race and faith, especially being Muslim. And I am brown. <laughs> so it's inevitable. And I became more aware of it, more conscious of it as I grew up, as I lived life in this world where being brown means that people don't automatically consider you Canadian because you're not white, which again is very ironic because being Canadian is being a person of color. And like I said, it was not a conscious choice. It's just how I happen to live. And with my experiences every day, whether it's at work, whether it's just walking down the street, whether it was going to school as a kid, all these things just... It is what it is, and this is how I operate in the world. And so I can't just sit back and be silent about these things. I can't be passive. I have to live proactively instead of reactively. Mm. And this is something that there's no choice about it. It's just who I am. You know, it's really funny <clears throat> that you both say it in that way because I think I come from a place where it wasn't the only choice. I grew up in India. Uh, I am Indian, but uh, I was I was born in Canada, but I grew up in India and uh, until I was 13. And after that, we moved to Surrey, which a mm -hmm. lot of people know there's a of lot course. of Indian population there. And after that, I came to Victoria for school. And so I lived in India and then in Surrey and then in Victoria. <laughs> and, uh, and you may expect a cultural shift, uh, somehow more so between Surrey and Victoria than India and Surrey. Really, eh? Uh, yeah. yeah I, I get it, actually. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, I mean, where, where I saw, where I had most of my formative years was in Surrey. It was a lot of people being very complicit in what, I would now recognize as racist behavior, complicit or being actively racist. And I mean, I think going back all the way to my childhood, I definitely had some like feminist ideas just rattling around in here, but it didn't really hit me until I moved to Victoria because that was the first time I actually felt like I knew what it meant to be a minority. It wasn't a reality for me in India, and it also wasn't a reality for me in Surrey because there is there's so many people there that look like me. Yeah, and there are people of uh, the same cultural background in leadership positions, and and there's representation of them on television because we have those channels everywhere. And, you know, like it's not something that was ever kept from me. Nothing I ever felt I didn't have access to until I moved here. And then I recognized... And Victoria is almost a totally different cultural Yeah, 100% it is. <laughs> so it was a very different experience. And I think what a lot of young kids of color go through in a lot of other parts of this country, I went through when I was 17 and moved to Victoria. So I think at that point, it started to feel natural to me to bring up my voice in this particular way and speak out about these particular things. But until then, it was like... The fire was always there, but it was still embers. You mm -hmm. know? Yeah. <laughs> 
Um, so could you go further into your experiences of what it's like to be a person of color in Victoria? That's a great question. So I found it so interesting. Um, you were saying you grew up in India and then Surrey and just, you know, progressively got whiter, I guess, <laughs> is what I was hearing. Um, and yeah, growing up in Toronto, there is so much difference and people have always had different ways of understanding difference and difference exists and that's fine. But it was really when I moved to Victoria that I really felt it, mm-hmm. you know, like I felt it and I was like, this is this is different. Like, this is a different way of understanding difference. And I think that on a daily basis, living in a racialized body, it really is about those daily acts of courage that are probably the most significant marker of living in Victoria for me. You know, whether it's walking into a dance class where you know that potentially you are going to be the only racialized body. And how do I feel about that? Waking up in the morning knowing that I'm going to potentially be the only one, you know, and, and what what are the assumptions that other people are making about me? Walking into a classroom about uh, whether it's a healthy sexuality classroom or a gender studies classroom, like when you walk into those spaces as a racialized body, it takes courage and it, it, it may be small, but those are those daily acts that... I think for me have really defined my experience in Victoria being who I am that things that I didn't necessarily have to think about in Toronto you know are people gonna try and touch my hair or you know things like that right so yeah I think that was that's obviously a huge part of the shift that I was talking about recognize being in rooms constantly where I'm the only non-white person there or sometimes maybe there's other non-white people but I'm definitely the only Indian person in the room that was my first observation at the meet and greet that we had in my first year where I looked around the room at the group of people that would be second years and third years and fourth years in the theater department and I recognized I didn't see another person that looked like me and now I'm in third year and as the the young first years have come in every time I see a person of color I get so pumped because I'm like oh we got another one Um, (laughs) (laughs) but it's there's something scary about it and I think it can be hard to put a finger on why I feel unsafe in those situations and it's not necessarily violent fear I think there's a fear of either having to speak for things that I should not be speaking for or having to represent an entire community that I um there's a lot of Indians in the world um Mm -hmm. you may or may not know that (laughs) um and uh I think there's just a visible difference and I have now learned in my three years of living here how to deal with that difference but it can be hard for Mm -hmm. sure it can be hard and um for a lot of rooms that I'm in and a lot of shows that I've been in in a lot of creative situations I bring something to the table that (laughs) nobody else does and in my time here it's definitely been a growth and I've started to see that as a strength for sure but it at the at first it's a vulnerability because I bring something that no one else does. Absolutely. But it sets me apart. Mm-hmm. And I think it's definitely a personal journey to figure out how to make that your strength. Um, so for myself, I think it's a little bit different. So I actually grew up here on the island between Victoria and Vancouver. And Victoria has always been my home. But the difference between my life in Victoria and my life in Vancouver, where we lived for nine years, is quite interesting. So I'd always had like a very idealized version of Victoria in my mind because I was quite young 
um, when we first lived here and we moved to Vancouver when I was, I think, seven or eight. And for myself, Victoria always just represented family. I have a lot of family, like cousins and grandparents, cousins and third cousins, <coughs> twice removed. Indian families like are that. like that too. Exactly. Yeah. Well, we are Indian, so. <laughs> oh, really? Oh, yeah. oh my God, that's awesome. South African Indian. Okay, cool. But yeah, so just lots and lots of family. So for me, Victoria literally represented just family and home and safe space as a child. And we'd always come over summer vacations, spring vacations, winter break, like everything, right? And when we were lived in Vancouver, we were very actively involved in the Muslim community. My parents are leaders in the community. We're constantly surrounded by people of color, people of faith, very active. Even when I went to public school for, I think, right up until middle school, we were in communities where there were a lot of people of color. There were other Muslim kids. So we didn't feel that different. Like, yes, there were certain things that we didn't do that other people did. Holidays that were celebrated, whatever. But my family was always very engaged and hands-on. So my dad would come into the school, talk about Ramadan. Um, my mom would talk to me about hijab and why Muslim women wear hijab. And we'd have these discussions, these communications. Everything was very open. And I had a really privileged positive experience that I know a lot of people don't have Mm -hmm. you know growing up Muslim and a person of color in Canada and that was the advantage of living in Vancouver at the time and then I homeschooled throughout high school uh, and we actually moved back to Victoria when I was I want to say grade 10 or 11 and that was actually when I first became aware of the difference and how Victoria is very different from the mainland in terms of population of people of color and minorities in general um again my family is very very active in the muslim community so we were always surrounding ourselves with people of our community and reaching out and you know conducting activities and classes and lectures and things like that so i had a very strong sense of community and not feeling like a separate minority but when i did go out just walking out on the streets going places outside of that context I was aware of far more racist incidents. So my mom was actually the first woman in all of Vancouver Island to veil her face for many years. And I was so young at the time, of course, I had no idea the kinds of comments that she mm-hmm. dealt with and handled. Um, and even when we were in Vancouver, it would happen like every once in a while. And my mom's reaction is usually just like, ignore them, you know. But when we moved back here and I started experiencing similar things, I only started veiling at the age of 17. So I had life pre-veil and post-veil, you know, and I was able to recognize the different reactions that I got Mm -hmm. and the way that people would interact with me. And from what I would call subtle or passive racism to just overt, straight up Islamophobia. And uh, and then I moved overseas for a while. I was all in Muslim majority countries and I had very different experiences with racism over there. But I came back here almost four years ago. I was not as connected to the Muslim community. I mean, I had my daughter with me. Um, I was homeschooling her and other stuff. But I would be out and about a lot more as well. And this was when I realized the stark difference between the Victoria that I remembered growing up, which was very idealized compared to now in an age where Islamophobia runs rampant when we had mm-hmm. Stephen Harper and he tried to ban the niqab like five different times <laughs> in ten different ways yeah. and it still is constantly an issue mm-hmm. and the reactions that people have and the visceral reactions in particular I've been sworn at I've had people spit at me I was walking to Dallas Road Beach with my daughter who was five at the time um, we're just walking to the beach and this woman who's dressed white woman middle-aged I'm um, just very professionally just stops and starts spewing 
profanities on and on and on while my five-year-old is with me. Wow. That so was, sorry. I think, that one sucks. of the most outrageous incidents I'd ever dealt with because if I'm on my own, I will usually, like, turn around and cuss right back. Mm. And usually that scares them off because they don't expect a Muslim woman to respond. They mm-hmm. expect us to be passive. Mm. It, it's this weird stereotype that they have of us where, well, Muslim women are all oppressed and passive and we don't have a voice and we don't have our own presence but at the same time we're a threat because we're muslim and we mm-hmm. represent this big bad boogeyman <laughs> so they feel entitled to threaten us but they never expect to be responded to so if i'm on my own i will turn around and i will dish it right back but i was just my five-year-old you know and i was just like oh my god and this woman was ridiculously just over the top and I was like, I have my five-year-old with me. If I try to say anything and she tries to get violent, then what am I going to do? Mm-hmm. You know, so I just took my daughter and, and left, you know. But that particular incident made me extremely angry. And Can I ask if you had to talk to your daughter about that incident? After? I did. I did. She was terrified. She was sobbing on the way home. Oh and so I had to have a discussion with my five-year-old about how there are people who think bad things about Muslims and who will do bad things to us and say bad things to us and how it's okay to feel angry and upset by that. Um, but to remember that there's also so many wonderful people who are very kind to us and who will stand up for us. And unfortunately, that wasn't the only incident that my daughter was witness to. I mean, we'd be taking the bus to go somewhere and people would make nasty comments, whatever. And after during every incident, I would have to think about how is my daughter viewing this? How do I protect her? But at the same time, give her an example to show that you don't have to be silent and scared. You can be scared, you can be upset, but always remember that we have strength of our own and Mm -hmm. how to fight back in the right way. It's incredible how young that learning has to start. Yeah, and it was not something I ever expected because it's nothing. For me, the most jarring thing was one of the reasons I came back to the island was because I wanted my daughter to have the same kind of background and upbringing that Mm -hmm. I did. Mm -hmm. And yet, ironically... 10, 15 years ago, me growing up here was so much more cocooned and safer than it mm-hmm. is for my daughter now. Yeah. But at the very least, we have the, the tools and the awareness and the language to discuss this, which I feel we didn't have back then. When, it did, when such incidents did come up, we're just like, well, you know, bad people are bad people or ignorance is ignorance. But mm-hmm. now we have the awareness to identify the different aspects and factors behind this kind of racism, behind this kind of hatred, and how to navigate and how to discuss it, and how, more importantly, how to effectively combat it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Incredible. So we've talked about uh, taking up space in Victoria on a personal level, as a person of color. So could you talk about what it's like to be a person of color on a professional level, too? The field that I would like to pursue, that I'm currently pursuing, is... um, Entertainment, I guess, would be one way to to capture it all. There's something about being a person of color and just existing in a space that was previously held by only white people or only men or only, you know, like all of the onlys. When you exist as a person of color, especially a woman of color, when you exist in that space, you're automatically making a statement and that's something that I've come to terms with in the short time that I've been doing stand-up because I (laughs) there was this incident uh where I was doing stand-up comedy at the theater department party which was like the second time I was doing stand-up comedy I was still very very new at it and I had written the set and it was going pretty well 
And there was this one part where I was raging about how much I hate the British. Uh, and, <laughs> um, and uh, which, you know, uh, fair enough, I think. Uh, and, and so I was just doing this whole bit about how much I hate the British and how I stepped on the scone and it was wasteful, but I think it makes sense. And, and now my friend said they're going to move to Manchester, so we're not talking anymore. And as I'm doing this stuff, I just say, so yeah, I hate the British. And someone, who I later found out was just, like, this white boy from the theater department, heckled me. He heckled me. But instead of saying, like, anything interesting or fun, because uh, you can heckle stand-up comedians. A lot of people do. He heckled me and said, watch who you're talking to. As I was raging about the Brits. What? And I was like, what are you doing right now? Like, the British don't really need you to defend them. They're fine. The Great British they still, Empire. They still have our freaking Kohinoor, okay? They still have our diamond. Special they have up. not given it back. They do not need you to defend them. But yeah, it was at the time, I barely heard what he said, and it wasn't until after. I was just kind of like, yeah, I'm just going to keep performing because that's what I'm doing here. But afterwards, I found out what he said, and it wasn't until really later that I thought about it and how I was just taking up space on stage. Wearing a sari. Wearing a sari. I was doing stand-up yes. wearing a sari. That is so awesome. <laughs> so proud of you. I was just existing on stage, wearing a sari, doing stand-up, wearing a freaking bindi, wearing my bangles, raging about the British, all things that I have a right to do. And yet, someone still had to take up space in my performance to tell me to watch who I'm talking to. It's just astounding that my entertainment can be so threatening to someone. Mm-hmm. And after that performance, right after was, or soon after was the like intermission for the night. It was kind of like an, um, like a show and tell. That's not, the, that's not, <laughs> those aren't the words I'm looking for. Um, uh, it was a showcase. That makes more sense. <laughs> Um, it was a showcase performance, and so it was just a var- bunch of variety performances, and at the intermission, the only other Indian woman in the department, who I'd barely ever spoken to, because I was a second year and she was a fifth year, and we never had any classes or anything, she comes up to me, and without really saying any words, she's just looking me in the eyes, and, and, and she's kind of shaking, and I, before I knew it, I was shaking, and we're just looking at each other, and she's like, that, that was so powerful. And I was like, what What are you talking about? (laughs) And I was crying and she was crying. We're just two Indian women (laughs) standing there like shaking and crying. There was barely any words in in that conversation. And yet there was so much love. And I think what I realized (laughs) was that was my second time doing stand-up comedy. (laughs) And yet I already had a woman of color come up to me and cry to me about how powerful it was for her. Mm-hmm. And the reason I love doing stand up is because of that and because I can take up space and make jokes and make people laugh. Mm-hmm. But I'm still taking up space on a stage that has for so long been held by white men mm-hmm. if we're being like that's uh, that's most stand up comedians. Right. And um and with acting and with directing and with whatever it's it's still the same. I'm still taking up a space in in this industry where that space hasn't always been there for me. And I was reading I was watching this video with Cameron Esposito and her wife, Rhea Butcher, who are both stand-up comedians. Mm -hmm. And they were talking about how if you're a man, especially a white man, if you're a white man and you're being political on stage, it's because you're saying something political. 
but for a person of color, uh, for someone in the LGBTQ community, for any underrepresented minority, just being on stage is a political act. Mm-hmm. And I think that's something that's really resonated with me, and that's really something that I realized through that whole process and that whole journey where in the same day someone heckled me for talking about the Brits and an Indian That was all the same day. Wow. <laughs> and it was a lot mm-hmm. of learning. <laughs> but, yeah, I think moving forward I've just realized how radical it can be (laughs) to just exist as an artist and as a woman of color. Absolutely. I think definitely professionally, like that is such an interesting journey. And especially when you're in artistic spaces or when you're in more academic spaces Mm -hmm. or you're just, you know, working at a store in the mall, like how that plays out. And it's really interesting that um, when you're speaking about theater, it made me think back because I'm like, I don't act. I mean, if you if you paid me, I'd do it. But <laughs> if you paid me, I'd do a lot of things. So, um, Same. <laughs> but I remember when I was younger, maybe uh, 13 or something, I was going to the Second City in Toronto and mm-hmm. doing improv classes. Oh, and awesome. I remember I was doing, and I was the only black person. And Second City also, like pretty privileged space to mm-hmm. be in mm-hmm. to begin with. And I remember we were doing some improv exercise and we had to quickly come up with little scenarios of who we were or whatever. And at one point I said, oh, I'm the white spotted horse or something. And then one of the guys was like, are you sure? And everybody just just stopped and kind of laughed. (laughs) And like as a 13 year old, you're just mortified. And I remember that being one of the only times where I was thinking like, I wish I was just lighter. You know, I wish I was lighter. Like, I hate this, you know? And so it's so interesting, those defining moments that really can, like, shape your career and really can shape your your professional experience. I mean, I'm probably just a shitty actor, but that's why I'm not an (laughs) actress. But, like, who knows, you know? You think of all the people who go through their journey and these little microaggressions and these little things that happen being in super white spaces Mm -hmm. that they say, you know, maybe this isn't for me. Yeah. Right? Now I started out in the creative writing program with uh, like Ambernice and it took me probably three years to be like, you know, I I don't even sometimes like saying this out loud because I don't want to put down the department. I think the department's great. But I think that for me, because what I'm writing about so often is race, I just didn't need to be there. Like Mm -hmm. and, and, and it was in a space that was upholding me. Mm-hmm. I didn't need a group to workshop me. I I needed a community who understood what it was like to live the experiences that I'm writing about. Yeah. Right. I don't need somebody to tell me whether the commas are in the right place or not, <laughs> you know. I need somebody who understands what it's like to live in my body. Mm-hmm. And so I've found that professionally I just end up in in mm-hmm. racialized spaces. Mm-hmm. Like, I only work in racialized spaces now. And that's a privilege that I have, being able to choose that, being at university, being able to work in certain spaces. But I have just chosen to totally not put myself in certain spaces because I just don't feel comfortable and I don't feel safe. Mm-hmm. And is that something that is, you know, potentially hindering my career in certain ways? Maybe. Right. But that's just the reality of where it's at. And I think that we need to really nurture our roots Mm -hmm. so that we can really be well and be happy and be healthy and flourish. And I have so much respect for people who just put themselves in 
really white spaces and just say, fuck it. I'm just going to do it. Honestly, so much respect. I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. I still can't do it. It is rough. And I just The theater department is so white. Exactly. And I have so much respect because I know what it takes. And it's, it takes a lot. And the, one of the hardest parts is that you can't even really articulate it because nobody yeah. really did anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? yeah. Isn't that the yeah. thing about Victoria? That's nobody it. really did anything. It, right? but, but yet. <laughs> yet. But yet. Why do I feel so fucking unsafe? Yeah. <laughs> right? Like, it's, it's so, it can be so small and yet feel so big. Exactly. And it can be the way that people talk about you or the way that people look at you or the way that you f- just feel. And I think that's really valid. You know, and I think that that can be a journey to recognize that the way that you feel is valid because a lot of the times it can be like, well, they didn't, they probably didn't mean anything by that. I'm like, I don't care (laughs) what they meant by that because I know what I felt by that. Exactly. And that's what matters to me. See, I think I have something that I call niqabi privilege, okay, (laughs) because a lot of people, a lot of women, right, they feel unsafe when they go out. Mm -hmm. And I used to live in James Bay, and I would totally go walking out in downtown at, like, way past sundown, the middle of the night, you know, and they'd be, like, homeless homeless people, there'd be drug addicts everywhere, crazy white guys, right? (laughs) And people would be like, oh, my God, be careful, it's unsafe. I'm like, listen, I am the scariest person on these streets right now. I feel that. Okay? (laughs) They are more scared of me than I am of them. They should be scared. (laughs) Um, But... All jokes aside, uh, when it comes to taking up space professionally, how about I call my two separate professional lives? Online is where I am a writer. I have been a writer since, well, literally since I could write, but I have been a published writer since I was about 14. And it started off, I had the privilege, again, of being published in a Muslim community newspaper in Vancouver. We had that, which was really awesome. Mm -hmm. I'd always wanted to get published, like, in school. Doing English class was great. But a lot of the stories were just so white. I'm like, I can't relate to any of this. I mean, like, it's not personal to me, mm-hmm. you know? I'm like, okay, sure, the cremation of Sam McGee, everybody reads it. Guess what? I'm not a white guy out cremating my dead friend out here in the snow, okay? <laughs> like, I'm Lord Muslim. I wouldn't do that yeah. anyway. <laughs> okay. But again, so then... Uh, my goal was always, okay, I want to be a writer, I want to be a writer. But the things that I wrote about were very brown. And I couldn't imagine my stories being published anywhere for anybody else to see. And I started getting into, so I dabbled a little bit in fiction, but I also became uh, more and more active in my local Muslim community. Like I said, my family is very involved. And so I started writing basically like op-ed columns. And the place for me to publish that, originally I created a blog, which was great because I found that all of a sudden there's like the Muslim blogosphere. And I was connecting (laughs) with Muslims all over Canada and America and the UK, Muslims in a Western Mm. context who totally understood what I was talking about, who related to me Mm -hmm. and my community issues and my personal feelings and like everything, which was just such a mind blow for like a 14-year-old Muslim girl. You know, and then I was able to develop those further, improve the quality of my writing, and I got published in the Muslim uh, community newspaper, which was, again, a really big deal. Mm -hmm. Like, here is a space where I can share my thoughts and feelings. People will take it seriously and understand it, and it's not like, well, I have no idea what you're talking about. This is irrelevant. This was very relevant to to me and to us and to our communities, and I it was so incredibly empowering to get feedback on those articles from other community members who were like, yeah, totally, or even if they 
totally disagreed. They still understood what I was talking about right. and the background that I was coming from. So that was really, really amazing. And ever since then, I've had the privilege of working within faith-based spaces and racialized spaces mm. where people understood, people got it, which was incredible. And I'm so glad I had that because in the real world, that isn't there. You know, um, I'd sent letters to the editor to, you know, the Times Colonist, for example. Mm -hmm. And it would always be about things like the niqab ban. Like, mm -hmm. every time the niqab ban comes out, I'm like, damn it, I have to do this again? <laughs> and I, like, fire off all those letters. But that's a very specific situation. It's a, where these topics do affect me directly. And I demand that other people hear from mm -hmm. my voice because this is something that impacts me directly. But if I were to write anything else on any other topic and referenced my experiences as a brown visibly muslim woman in victoria in canada most people would just overlook it because it's not relevant to them they don't really care it's not malicious per se but it, they just don't get it they don't relate to it and then that's you know my background as a writer where recognizing the very jarring difference between mainstream publications, <laughs> mainstream media, and then the very specialized racialized spaces we have as people of faith, people of color. Mm. And I'm so happy that I do have those spaces, but at the same time, I'm very aware that those spaces are also limited and they're insular. Mm -hmm. They're targeted towards us, which we need, which we absolutely need so much for ourselves, but it still doesn't connect with everybody else. While my writing on the internet in Muslim publications and faith-based publications can impact a lot of other people all around the world, it doesn't actually impact the people that I'm walking around and talking to every single day. And that's where I transition to my real-life professional life, um, which is at the chocolate shop. And I am the only person of color in the entire store all, all the staff members are white they're lovely people don't get me wrong they're really awesome and i am very privileged and almost every single day since i got that job i have had so many experiences and interactions with people that run the gamut from the good the bad the ugly the outrageously hilariously bizarre mm. <laughs> i've had people call me zorro i've had a customer straight up refuse to look at me and talk to me mm. wow because it was when the niqab ban thing was being proposed in Quebec. And she turned mm. around and spoke to my coworker and said, you know they are banning that in Quebec. They need to do that here. Oh, <laughs> Straight up. And I, as though I wasn't there, like, I'm mm. literally this close to her. And she just refused to look at me, refused to talk to me, and spoke to my coworker instead. I've made it a habit now to keep track of all these interactions for mm. my own reference and to share with other people what I do go through. Wow. That's a lot to digest. So why don't we take a break? And when we come back, we'll continue this conversation. Up next, CFUV's production team has put together a spotlight on a support network for Indigenous women and women of color, a resource that can be found in Victoria. Stay tuned for that. Different communities in Canada face different barriers when it comes to accessing healthcare. Among these groups include women of color and indigenous women who are disproportionately disregarded when it comes to reproductive health. According to Statistics Canada, one in five women living in Canada is born abroad. 
Immigrant women aged 25 or older are less likely than Canadian-born women to rate their overall health as very good or excellent. Additionally, a study released by the Centers of Excellence for Women's Health indicated that Indigenous women experience a disproportionately high rate of sexually transmitted infections, reproductive tract infections, teenage pregnancies, and sexual violence. In order to combat these dismal realities, women of color are banding together and creating organizations to advocate for the reproductive justice of women of color and Indigenous women. Their sister song, based mainly in Atlanta, along with the Milwaukee Reproductive Justice Collective and the California Black Women's Health Project, to name a few. Here in Victoria, Indigenous women and women of color can turn to SNEWalk for support and information on how to seek reproductive justice. The Support Network for Indigenous Women and Women of Color, also known as SNEWalk, is a local nonprofit organization that explores reproductive justice through food, art, and education. As a note, reproductive justice refers to the right to maintain bodily autonomy, to have children, to not have children, and to parent one's children in safe and healthy environments. This term was coined by women of color. SNEWalk mobilizes Indigenous women and women of color to strive for reproductive justice by using the commonality of lived experiences. These lived experiences are shared during regular events and workshops, music celebrations, an annual neighborhood festival in Quadra Village, and so much more. Want a taste of what Sneewalk does to bring Indigenous women and women of color together? You can get the scoop on the great work that they do by attending Food with a Side of Community, a monthly meal hosted at the Bayanihan Community Center. Indigenous women and women of color are brought together during these events to enjoy a tasty, homemade meal where they can share their personal stories. A different cuisine is explored for each event. Some of the past meals have included Filipino chicken adobo, Vietnamese pho, Haudenosaunee corn soup, and an iftar feast for Ramadan. Admission for these events is by donation. Along with the community dinners they host monthly, Sneewalk presents workshops on a regular basis that focus on spreading knowledge and awareness about topics of reproductive health and justice. Past workshops have included conversations on birth control, uplifting black lives, and reproductive justice through photography and creative expression. Here's founder Boma Brown with more on that. Our workshops incorporate three complementary strategies to reach the goal of reproductive justice, food, art, and education. In addition, the workshops actively fight against reproductive oppression. Reproductive oppression is the control and exploitation of women, girls, and individuals through their bodies, sexuality, labor, and reproduction. This regulation of women becomes a powerful strategic way to control their communities and involve systems of oppression that are based on race, disability, class, gender, sexuality, age, and immigration status. We believe that thinking about reproductive justice is key to the struggle against reproductive oppression. Are you seeking information for your own reproductive justice? Sneewalk has put together a sexual and reproductive health access guide for the greater Victoria area. The guide provides free and paid resources that Victoria citizens can access to address reproductive health concerns. It also gives tips on what information you need to access the services, when to access them, and how much any paid services cost. You can find this guide on Sneewalk's website. So, when will reproductive justice be met? 
It exists when all people have the social, political, and economic power and resources to make healthy decisions about their gender, bodies, sexuality, and families for themselves and their communities. Sneewalk continues to pave the way for reproductive justice for all Indigenous women and women of color. To learn more about Sneewalk, visit their website at www.sniwwoc.ca. Break free from boring ice cream with Cold Comfort. Cold Comfort is a small, independent ice cream company right here in Victoria, with over 400 different handcrafted ice cream flavors inspired by everything from local fruit to local beer. Curiously flavored and locally made, they've been doing whatever the hell they feel like since 2010. Head on down and treat your taste buds today. Check them out at www.coldcomfort.ca. Welcome back to Taking Up Space. I'm your host, Anne Bernice Thomas. This episode features conversations on racialization and what it's like to live and take up space as a person of color. I'm joined by Rahat, Zainab, and Simone. So before the break, we kind of got into how being a person of color affects your relationships with people and the world around you. Can you speak to other points on your social location and explain how and why race affects other intersections within yourself or community, if at all? All right, so for me, it's pretty obvious, I guess, in the sense that race affects the intersectionality of Islamophobia. That's a major, major thing that I deal with, which many, many, many Muslim women deal with. The more visibly a minority you are, the more the intersections come into play. Muslim women in particular, we face the unique intersection, I feel, of race, Islamophobia, and sexism. Mm -hmm. There's this perception that others have that as Muslim women, we are passive, we are weak, we're oppressed, we're easy targets, and because of the visibility of our faith, we are threats. Uh, And we see this constantly. If you read the comment section of any blog or news article online that talks about Islam or Muslim women or the niqab ban, the comments will astound you. They're disgusting. They're horrific. They are this horrific conglomeration of sexism and Islamophobic hatred and racism and so many assumptions. Like every worst stereotype, every worst slur you can imagine gets thrown at visibly Muslim women for the color of our skin, for our perceived backgrounds, for the way we dress, for our faith background, all of it. For example, being called terrorist slut is one of the weirdest ones I've had thrown at me because I'm just like, what? I I don't even know how to start unpacking it. Mm -hmm. You know, there's so much going on. Yeah, I kind of take it with a little bit of humor. I'm just like, that's really dumb. Please, can we sit down and have a discussion on, like, all the ways that you're wrong and dumb and your your insults don't even make sense. They're contradictory. Like, if you think I'm sexually oppressed, then the slut part doesn't make sense. And then if you think I'm a terrorist, then why would you even be talking to me? Because, like, shouldn't you be afraid of me? Then I'm going to, like, blow you up or something? You know, like, think this through, please. There's not a lot of thought that goes into this. No, story. there isn't. Yeah. Um, 
For me, I guess the intersections are, it's not that complicated, except the things that I've, because I'm, I'm an Indian woman, and my gender identity is female, and I'm not a part of the LGBTQ community, but I feel like a lot of the times the intersections that I find I face are about taking up space as an Indian woman, <laughs> feeling this weight of having to represent India all the time, especially since I lived there, so people have a lot of questions about what that's like, and think that my experience speaks for a lot of people, which I led a very privileged life in India and I cannot speak for majority of the people that live there. The fact that I'm here proves how privileged I am. And having this, to rattle this weird line with having to then go home, be with my family. And my, my immediate family, they're the best. And if anything ever comes up, any weird things they say that are no longer okay <laughs> um i can talk to them about it mm-hmm. and they'll usually understand and they'll they'll make a change but then i have extended family which if you're indian then you know what that's oh, like yeah. it is so many people and they all have very different ideas about what it means to be indian and to be of any particular gender and what it means to exist as a person in society and within the home and so what I find I fight a lot is being a feminist being a woman being someone who likes to take up space and then going home and being at like a family dinner where there's a million cousins and they're all sexist and racist and terrible and having to understand how to navigate their ideas of what it's like to be a girl because to them a lot of my cousins they're older than me and they're men and they still see me as a kid but more importantly, as a girl mm-hmm. and as a stupid, young, naive girl who doesn't know what she's talking about. Mm-hmm. So they'll say stupid things around me to agitate me and they'll they'll expect me to fit into gender roles and stuff. So it's a weird line to be representing, I guess, India or understanding my place in the world that I've created for myself, and the kind of space I want to take up when I'm around the community, when I'm taking up space as an artist and then having to go home and still be expected to fit into a particular mold of what it means to be an Indian woman. And I don't want to talk India or the Indian community, but I'm a strong believer in if you care about something and if you love something, you'll recognize its flaws and you'll want to make it better. So there's no point in me pretending that the Indian community is flawless. Mm-hmm. I know there's flaws. I know there's sexism and there's racism and there's so much homophobia and, and, and transphobia and Islamophobia. There is so much there that needs to be talked about in order for it to get better. And so the world that I create for myself, the space that I decide to take up outside of my home, outside in the world where I am working professionally or learning or educating or whatever, that has to come into my house of relatives and of people and I maybe I can't change them I probably can I've tried and they just don't take me seriously but uh because they are sexist (laughs) but it's always a struggle to figure out what kind of powerful woman of color I am outside and what kind of Indian girl I am at the end of the day do I still come home and am I still a good Indian girl great uh thank you for sharing so on that note What role does community play in your personal and political life? I think community is everything. Like, I think that we live under capitalism. You know, Mm -hmm. we live in a settler colonial state. Like, it's lonely. People are deeply lonely. Like, I just know that, you know, not everybody. But it's like, we're really set up in a society that's like meant for us to be 
individualized and mm-hmm. meant for us to be alone and meant for us to not have communities and and that works to like the state's advantage in many ways you know and so i think that like community is really the the answer to that it is where we can come to heal we can come to be together kim milan has this beautiful thing that she said that i always remember and she said that self-love does not happen without community love and self-love doesn't happen in a vacuum and we can't be asking people to love themselves and when the world is telling them not to exist you know it's unrealistic we can't just have our self-care days and then be like okay now I'm great when you walk outside your door and people are for example yelling slurs at you and say oh why aren't you loving yourself we need community Like community is the answer and communities can foster that love where when we are faltering and they can pick us up. And when we experience these experiences of racism that we're talking about, that we know our worth. And not only do we know it in ourselves, but we have a community of people backing us up who say, yeah, we know, we know that you're worth, the society's actions towards you are not a reflection of your worth. So I think the community is so important and it's it's really been everything for me in terms of activism. Like I don't really see activism in my life separate from community at all. Completely agree with that. Community plays such a huge role in who I am as a Muslim woman, as a Desi woman. So my family is the first community that I've ever known. And as brown people, we have really big families <laughs> that are always, always together and always, always keeping tabs on you. And this can be really frustrating at times, but more and more as I grow older and I see, I see my daughter having that experience mm-hmm. with my family, I appreciate it so much more because I realize that because my family is so tight-knit, because we have a strong sense of personal identity, of familial identity, of a larger Muslim community identity, a lot of the strength that I feel and a lot of the resilience that I have towards what I do deal with outside that I have to face when I read the comment section of any news article about Islam or Muslims or brown people is because my family, my community gave me that strength. Mm -hmm. And like our family motto is like, it doesn't matter what other people say. You keep living your life. You know what is important to you. You know what our values are. We know what we're upholding and we'll fight for that and we're never ever sacrificing that will never ever give that up and this is something that i know not every minority or person of color has a lot of us deal with trying to fit in mm-hmm. in my family we have always been very actively against fitting in and about standing up for ourselves and being proud of who we are of being visibly different and this is something that i feel gave me so much strength when i was younger and particularly now uh, and then as a muslim woman I have an additional incredible community in person, online, around the world. Muslim women writers and artists in particular is an amazing, amazing group of women just supporting each other and accomplishing such great things everywhere, whether it's small things locally. And then, like I said, online, there's just such an incredible community of Muslim women, inventors and artists and writers and poets and everyone and just supporting each other and really being there for one another and recognizing like we know we have these struggles and we share these problems and if we're having a hard day we know where we can turn to for reassurance and for community love and self-love and affirmation and positivity and you know how to deal with a difficult situation at work we have that sense of community which is so so important to 
our overall well-being and I'm very aware of the difference like I said from when I was growing up and I wasn't as aware of that even then I did have that sense of community but knowing how much more easily accessible it is now and how much stronger that is with the advent of technology and social media has just been this huge huge radical blessing and form of activism in and of itself Mm -hmm. to have that amazing answers Simone as a Métis woman, what are your thoughts on the complex relationships between indigenous North American people and the migrant, displaced, refugee, settler people of color on this land? It is a discussion that, you know, indigeneity is so often left out of conversations of race mm-hmm. and so often left out of conversations of immigration um, and of uh, refugee um, issues. It's and And it really, like... Indigenous people are the foundation of this nation, period. That's Mm -hmm. not debatable. And so when we leave um, Indigenous people and Indigenous land out of that conversation, it really is an act of like colonial violence, you know, and not to say that, you know, anybody is this is what we've been raised to do. Right. And so that's what that's why we're doing it. But that's that is what it is. And so Indigenous communities have always taken people in. We have like stories of that. We have like so many people. Harsha Walia um, talks about that when she was seeking asylum, basically. And I think it was a Coast Salish community that took her in. And she was the founder of No One is Illegal, the Vancouver chapter. And she writes about this issue of like immigration status and like migrants and refugees, but always keeps indigenous people and indigenous land as part of the conversation and I think that it's so so important that we do that yeah there's actually I was just remembering this I was I was thinking about the this question but in October in Toronto where there's a Hindu community they do a a fundraiser walk every year and in October they decided to do it and donate to Anishinaabe Health um, which is a an indigenous health clinic downtown for the urban population, and they raised fifty seven thousand. And so there are these relationships that are happening, and they've been happening since the beginning of time. You know, since people first started arriving here, it's just about creating those good relationships. You know, and I think I would say for like people who just aren't aware of what's really going on, just to ask questions. You know, and start from that place of like whose land am I on? And like, that is a Google search. Like Google has educated me beyond recognition. Like you can do it right now sitting at home. Like, you know, whose land am I on? How how do I pronounce that? Google it. Like it's probably there, you know, everybody's on the internet. Right. And then be like, what are some of the issues that are going on? Like, and how can I help? Because you don't have to reinvent the wheel. Like, people are already having these conversations. People are already creating these relationships. These relationships exist. There are so many different things happening. It's just about asking questions and being like, oh, I can plug myself in here. Like, we don't even have to start our own stuff, you know? Um, But definitely asking questions and always keeping that in mind that there always has been a relationship like refugees and and migrants like this is this is always something that's been happening like this is not a new phenomenon but i think that with 
like the project of settler colonialism, when these narratives get swept up into settler colonialism and when our colonial state is telling migrants like this is what Canada is and indigenous people are left out of that conversation, Mm -hmm. it's such a big issue. And, and it's too bad, but it really is left on the shoulders of each individual person mm-hmm. to say, what's really going on here? I'm going to have to do my own research mm-hmm. and I'm going to have to look into it. And it sucks that, you know, our schools won't just teach us and our migration agencies won't just tell us, but they're not going to. And so I think that that's where activism comes into it is that we we can't be complacent like we we just have to do the work ourselves. Yeah. And it sucks, but that's where it's at. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, so finally, uh, this is a big question uh, that encompasses a lot of stuff, but uh <laughs> how do you personally deal with racism? I don't know if uh, if you guys saw the Hassan Minaj yes. homecoming <laughs> yes. thing. Yeah. yeah. So it's like a one-man show. It's on Netflix. Check it out if you want to. Okay. Hassan Minaj, he's a comedian. And he was talking about, in his show, about how his parents, and the same is true sort of for my parents and probably for a lot of people's parents, that when they were young, it was like racism and, you know, all these other isms and all these different oppressive things that a lot of people go through were expected and they were a price that you pay to live in Canada or to live in America. He was talking about America. And that we're at a place now where we're not okay with it anymore. Mm-hmm. I'm not okay with paying a price to live here. It's not written anywhere that if I'm a woman of color, if I'm, if I'm a person of color, I have to accept the hardships that come along with that. I demand change. Yes. I demand change. Make it, make it so that it's equal. And it's going to be work. It's going to be work for me. It's going to be work for you. But if there's going to be a better future, there has to be work. Just like you're saying, it's it's work and it sucks, but it's work and we're going to do it. Mm-hmm. I think for me, the change that I've been making, the ways that I've been working through dealing with racism in society and the, in whatever ways I face it, I think, is for once I'm demanding change. And I really think that that is a hard thing for people to demand because you don't want to feel like you're causing people an inconvenience and a lot of the time being a person of color being a a member of any underrepresented community can feel like you need to be a watered down version of that I need to be a watered down version of an Indian woman if I want to survive but I'm kind of really fucking sick of it I'm I am so done with that and so if if someone makes Islamophobic comments in my class if a professor makes an Islamophobic comment in my class which they do which they did I'm not just gonna sit in the back corner and roll my eyes anymore because that's done. That's over. We did yep. that already. We've oh, been yeah. doing that forever. Yep. And so now I'm gonna take it to the chair of the department and I'm gonna make a complaint and I'm gonna make that instructor apologize. There are make consequences. There are consequences for actions. Exactly. And very pretty much exactly what we were saying. My response is just being unapologetically myself. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I refuse to take off my veil. I refuse to yeah. make <laughs> myself look accommodating and acceptable to you like i have people telling me like oh why don't you just wear a different color you know people will feel better like i'm sorry i wear black because i'm goth and i love it okay (laughs) (laughs) the color doesn't actually have to do with my faith i just love the color black deal with it i'm not here to make you comfortable i'm here to make you uncomfortable because i'm not here to make you comfortable hell yeah right and just call it out 
like I said, people expect me to be passive. I will not be passive. I will call it out. You cuss me in the streets, I will turn around and cuss you ten times more <laughs> and make you feel bad. <laughs> All right, I will make you feel scared. I will be the scariest person on the streets if I have to be. With people who have nonviolent racism... I will call it out just as much. Yeah. I have customers who say things all the time like, oh, well, don't you feel bad, you know, in Saudi Arabia? I'm like, I'm not Saudi. What gives you that impression? Why are you making these assumptions? And I will call them out. And mm-hmm. I will have these discussions. And nobody expects to be held up 10 minutes at the till because your cashier is educating you <laughs> on the difference between being Muslim and being Saudi or whatever else the topic may be. But I will do that. And enjoy your chocolates. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, last words. I will just say, like, there is so much going on in this city between, like, the housing and poverty crisis, between, mm-hmm. like, the the violent acts and, and non-violent acts towards trans, queer, non-binary folks. Like, there is so much going on in this city, but I think that it's so tempting to be complacent because, like, like I said, it's they didn't really do anything. Was that really a thing? Like, it's so tempting to be complacent in this city of Victoria. And, like, all I have to say is just don't be. Like, open your eyes. Like, walk downtown. This is not some idealistic city that they painted to be, like, of retired people. Like, no, there's violent things happening in this city all the time. So, stay woke. (laughs) I find that with, with Canada in general and also specifically in Victoria... I think the greatest flaw of Canadian communities a lot of the times can be the misconception that we're doing well. Mm-hmm. I think there's something that one of the professors in the theater department said that I really love and I want to share, which is for me as an artist, but I think in general for people, is that if you're an artist, you have to be troubled and you have to be troublesome. Mm-hmm. Which to me means you have to be angry. (laughs) If you're not angry and if you're not moving forward and making change, then what the f*** are you doing? Because there is so much. And to believe that we're doing well is the first step towards failure. And we're failing right now. We are failing. And we need to do better. And there needs to be change. Mm -hmm. And we will. And And we we are. And we are. This we right are now, the revolution. Change. <laughs> yes, we are. Thank you all so much for an amazing panel, for a great call to action this was. So that concludes our panel for this episode. Thank you so, so much to Zainab, Simone, and Rahat for coming in to speak with us today. If you liked this episode, please subscribe to Taking Up Space. Rate us, leave us a comment, or review the show at www.cpvpodcast.com or wherever else you get your podcasts. This program was produced by myself, Alba Clevenger, Kevin Hammond, and Max Collins. Our theme music is composed by Arcade Palette. This episode was created by CPV's production team. If you want to be a part of making amazing programs like this one, head to cpv.ca to learn more. Taking Up Space wouldn't be possible without the generous support of our friends at Cold Comfort and the Community Radio Fund of Canada. We'll leave you today with a bit of poetry from our panelist, Simone Blay. I'm Anne-Bernice Thomas. This is Taking Up Space, and we'll catch you next time. Hi, my name is Simone Blay. I live here in Victoria, and I'm from Toronto. I'm a poet, 
and a dancer and also a doula. So um, yeah, I'm just going to share some poems with all of you. I was born on Canada Day. I was birthed on hot streets that thirsted for rain under polluted skies that broke open for me and they always light fireworks just for me to see. They told me that Canada means safety, but I, born at midnight on the David's birth, heard first the beat of my mother's heart through one ear and the collapse of fireworks through the other. I knew in that moment that this country was broken like my mother had broken open for me because they both sounded like pain. I heard the war cries of Roman candles fight cherry bombs in the night than the collision of a thousand Canadian bombs. I was born on the day when white men signed the Constitution and voiced promises they would never uphold, as they raised flags and proclaimed that we are as free as the maple tree, as free as the trees that were cut down to write the same Constitution that my immigrant father signed for me, hoping for a better life for we, and I cannot deny that this country has served me well. I decided to forgive it for the free healthcare that sticks IV in my family and the thousands of dollars of hospital bills that we never see And although I am grateful that this country raised me, I sometimes feel that it really truly hates me. That its government wants to rape me, that as a brown spiritual woman I will never truly be free. I used to fight for this country and now I fight this country. My blood family bought into this country while my blood relatives had to overcome this country. See this Canada, my Canada's wars are so invisible. You don't have to see blood on the ground to know there's a problem on the land. Sometimes it's a building where forests used to grow. And this mind, my mind has been miseducated so many times by schools that want to see me on Prozac before they see me back on the land. But this mind persists in seeking the truth. And this heart, my heart is the only thing that holds it all together. Because this heart pumps blood memory of Trinidad Orishas, this heart knew love before it knew state borders, this heart knew love before it knew English, this heart knew love before it knew colonial violence. I was born on Canada Day, and I heard first the beat of my mother's heart, then the explosion of a thousand Canadian bombs. Soil. He held my breast with his hand, dark as soil. He looked like the place where my roots should grow, so I received him like rain under summer heat. Said my sweat tasted like the salt of the Indian Ocean. Told me that I smelled like a leopard orchid pressed between pages of the Old Testament. Leopard orchids. Flowers too sun-dependent to grow here. God sculpted us from the same pile of West African earth, breathed life into our lungs, wind into the sails of the ships that washed us up on the same shore. I traced the shape of North America into his hand, the creases in his pink palm etched borders once I was done. My grandmother marched through fire, swam across an ocean, relinquished tropical air for car exhaust so I could live on in her blood. So do not ask me what pulls my blood like waves in a storm. I am what salt water and sacrifice has birthed.
Cold Comfort is an ice cream store with a conscience. Crafted by ethically paid employees using local, organic, fair trade, and natural ingredients, Cold Comfort offers high-quality, guilt-free ice cream. Ice cream is for everyone. They make dairy-free, vegan, and sugar-free options, as well as gluten-free ice cream sandwiches. Now that's some ice cream I can get behind. Find out more at www.coldcomfort.ca.